A violent scene erupted Sunday between a group of monks gathered at what millions consider one of the holiest places on earth. This was the scene at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as Armenian and Greek Orthodox monks began to shove and push one another. The incident flared up as the Armenian monks began a procession commemorating the 4th century discovery of the cross believed to have been used to crucify Jesus. The Greeks objected, saying the march should not begin without one of their monks present. That's when this scene broke out. The church, located in Jerusalem's old city, marks the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Two clergymen were arrested and questioned following the incident. For MSNBC.com, I'm Dara Brown. No, that was not Saturday Night Live. How's that make you feel? Distressed. Yeah. As it should. You know, in our text this morning, we will read words together where Paul speaks about a mystery that was hidden for ages. That is... The salvation of the Gentiles and that God's intent was that now through his church, his manifold wisdom would be known to the world. That through the life and the activity of his church, the world would recognize how smart and how wonderful and how awesome God is. Don't think that that's what Paul had in mind when he said those words. I I could be mistaken, but I think he had something else in mind. If anything, when a watching world sees God's people at one another, they... If they believe in God at all, they must question His wisdom. They must question God's thinking in giving any kind of, of authority or mission to human beings. Because they're just going to screw it up. I think it's reasonable. It might be just that kind of scenario that that we saw there that Paul does not want to happen in the Ephesian churches between, in particular, the two people groups that we have seen identified, the Jews and the Gentiles. Last week, you remember, we, we heard him speak of the grace of God in Christ that has taken away the hostility that exists between The two people groups in particular that he was concerned about, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles, of course, could be any number of ethnic groups. Jesus has become our peace, Paul said. And because he has become our peace, we then have peace with one another. 
The premise is this, that if we are at peace with God, there ought to be nothing that disrupts the unity that God's people have with one another. If Jesus has made peace between me and a holy God, then the assumption is there is nothing that can break up our peace. Paul desperately wants the Ephesians to understand that where grace has brought the revelation of Jesus Christ into their lives and where that same grace has worked in their hearts to bring about salvation through Jesus, there's, there is, there's really no longer any reason for, for tension and hostility. And, and there was lots of tension between, between Jew and Gentile in Paul's day. The dividing wall of hostility that he talks about. Probably a reference to to the wall that that kept the Jews and the Gentiles separate in the temple courts in Jerusalem. You know, that wall stood as a reminder to both sides. We are different. For the Jews, it was we are special. For the Gentiles, it was we are less than. They think they're better than us. And so that wall stood as a constant reminder. You cannot come in here and we do not go out there. Paul says specifically that Christ has removed the dividing wall of hostility between those groups. I read one of the neatest stories this week about about Billy Graham. He has he's been one of my heroes for for many, many years. The. uh The A. Larry Ross firm handled media and public relations for more than 23 years for the Graham organization. Mr. Ross says that one of the distinctives of Mr. Graham's ministry has been his ability to make positive points for the gospel in any situation. He says you can ask Billy Graham how he gets his suits dry cleaned on the road and he'll turn it into a gospel witness. He says, I worked in the corporate world before I worked with Mr. Graham. And, and I set up numerous media interviews. And almost always, before a TV interview, they do a microphone check. And they ask the interviewee to say something, anything, so that they can adjust the audio settings. Often a corporate executive for that check will count to ten, say their ABCs, or recite what he had for breakfast. Mr. Graham would always quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. When I asked Mr. Graham why he does that, he replied, because that way, if for some reason I don't communicate the gospel clearly during the interview, at least the cameraman will have heard it ahead of time. Isn't that precious? So intent on what's important, so concerned that what is critically important would not be lost. Paul does not want the Ephesian believers to lose sight of what is really important. What is really premium in terms of their life together. He does not want to forget them to forget what what God has done for them. And what 
should be happening in their lives together, or perhaps we would say what shouldn't be happening in their lives together as a result of what God has done for them in Christ. Paul, you remember, told them he he himself is our peace. And his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, one new person out of two people groups, making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And then he ended that section of his letter talking about the Ephesians. You remember being joined together by God as a as a building established on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus as the cornerstone and they're being built together. We as God's people are being built together as a place where the spirit of God lives and where the spirit of God lives. The spirit of God, God, God's presence is there. And where God's presence is there, people take notice. And this morning, we're going to start into chapter 3 of Ephesians. So, I want to invite you to stand with me and let's, let's prepare to read our text together. Now, you're going to notice this morning that there's a break. Uh, if you've read ahead, you're familiar with this already. Paul launches in to uh, verse 1, and, and then there's a break. Verse 1 just kind of drops off. And then we start into verse 2. It's almost as if, if Paul's riding along and, oh yeah, suddenly he's distracted. I, oh, I've, I've got I've to remember to tell them this. Uh, and actually that distraction seems to, to take him along for about 12 verses. And then in verse 14, he returns back, it seems, to, to where he started. And, and we'll get to that next week. So let's, uh, let's read together this, uh, this spirit-inspired distraction, if you will. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Jesus Christ. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms 
according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. Paul is telling the Ephesians, God is doing a new thing. And he's telling about how he became a part of that. God's grace given to him. And as a result of that grace, he had an assignment for life. He became one who would take the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. And, and through special revelation, he had become privy to, to an age-old mystery that God had been planning all along to include Gentiles in his family. And, and unlike the, the occasional Gentile that found faith in the family of God in the Old Testament, this was going to be a widespread deal. God was adding all kinds of folks to his family. Jesus The Jewish Messiah was also the Savior to the Gentiles. Yeah, Savior of Jews and Savior of Gentiles. Now, when we started this morning, I mentioned verse 10, which we just read together. In light of that somewhat dreadful video clip that we watched. Let me read it again because we need to hear it. Listen closely. God's intent. This this. This effort to bring Gentiles into this predominantly Jewish faith at that point, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Did you get that? Let me read it one more time. His intent, his purpose, his reason in bringing Jews and Gentiles together To become his church, his intent was that through that church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. All right, you ready for your neighbor question this morning? Turn to someone nearby and ask them, who do you think Paul is talking about when he refers to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms? Who's he talking about? Go ahead, ask your neighbor. Who's Paul talking about? (laughs) This is great. You don't know how much fun it is watching your faces as you discuss something like this. Some of you are just really into it. Others are kind of going. Okay, what do you think? What'd your neighbor say? You, know, you always blame it on your neighbor. Well, my neighbor said this. What do you think? Who's he referring to? Doug. <laughs> Who shall remain anonymous, of course. <laughs> okay. Okay, and that's definitely one of the possibilities. You know, there's a, there's a passage in First Peter, if you're familiar with his writings, chapter 1. He speaks about the revelation of Christ as a mystery, 
similar language to what Paul is using here. And he mentions how the prophets of old, they searched with great care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which Christ would come and the glories, Peter says, that would follow. And then he says this, even the angels long to look into these things. In other words, the angels are going, wow, this is fascinating. So that's a possibility. What might be the other possibility, Cindy? Yeah. I think that there is a definite connection. Now, do they have an effect? That's always a difficult question to answer. Um, but is there is there observation going on? Is there is there something impacting those who watch? I think so. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. There was another comment. Dixie, did you raise your hand? Or Greg did. Okay. <laughs> Back in the corner. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's that's really uh, there there are really only two choices here because because Paul talks about heavenly realms. So right away we know that he's not talking about earthly rulers and authorities. So so something is is going on in the heavenly realms and and you know that at the end of Ephesians in chapter 6 Paul talks about the battle that believers face is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those are our two choices. Here's the point. Choose which one you want. Spiritual beings of some kind, good or evil or both, are watching God's church. They're watching what's going on on earth. And and I would go so far as to say, because of what Paul has said here, that in the minds of the onlookers, those that are watching from the heavenly realms, wherever those are, what's at stake is God's wisdom in bringing about the church as the vehicle to announce His salvation to the world. The credibility of God's plan, the credibility of His wisdom, is at stake based upon the life that God's people live together. I don't know how that strikes you. We often talk about the importance of our witness to the world that's watching us. We know that. We've talked about John 13 and John 17. We understand how important it is to have unity as the people of God so that people will know who Jesus is. But have you ever considered that heavenly beings are watching the church? They're following closely the actions and the attitudes of God's people to see if this idea that God had since the beginning of time is really going to work. I just I, I, I have this image of of, of the, good, the good angels, the good heavenly beings just kind of sitting on pins and needles. It's like, oh, man, I hope this comes out. And, and those on the dark side, ha. Huh, They're hoping it doesn't because they're pretty sure it's a stupid idea from day one. I don't really know what to do with this exactly. But that's, I think, what Paul is saying. And I I can't help but think of those first two chapters of Job. You remember the story? 
Satan had been watching Job's life and was convinced that the only reason that Job worshipped God and honored God is because God had blessed his socks off. He had everything that anyone could ever want. And the thinking was that if those things were taken away and suffering was inflicted upon Job, he would no longer worship God. In fact, he would dishonor God in what he said. I think that is such an instructive text for us. Those first two chapters, there there is more going on in the circumstances and events of our lives than is immediately seen. And Cindy, that's, that's, I think, the best that I can give answer to your question. There is something going on in the spiritual realm and, and, and all eyes are upon the people of God. We must understand that when we become followers of Christ and thus we have become children of God, we have changed sides in a spiritual battle. Often life gets harder and we face challenges as never before. Why is that the case? Because the forces of evil hate God. And when we become his children, guess what? We're on his side and they hate us because we stand for God Oh, sure, life was hard before we became followers of Jesus, but we simply wrote that off as bad karma. You know, now life gets harder as followers of Christ, and it's because we have aligned ourselves on the side of the light, and the darkness hates the source of that light. And often, as in Job's life, God uses the hard stuff to demonstrate His glory through us. Now because, by the way, because this is true, I think we always need, and you've heard me say this before, we need to be cautious what we tell people when sharing our faith and encouraging them to become followers of Jesus. For Pete's sake, don't tell them all their problems are going to go away when they become a follower of Jesus. Don't tell them that they're going to be happy in every every circumstance of their life because they're becoming followers of Jesus. We do a great disservice to people if we don't let them know that to become a follower of Jesus means, in the words of Jesus, you got to die to self. Take up a cross. Plan on suffering. Boy, now there's a popular gospel. It means... Giving up rights to our lives, it means living for God and not for self. And sometimes it is really, really, really hard because the powers of hell have turned up the heat. Do you see what's going on here? We become potential instruments to be used by the evil one to discredit and dishonor the God that he hates. And when we become followers of Christ, I think the most challenging lesson that we have to learn is that life is no longer about us. Remember Jesus' words. Die to self. Take up your cross. Follow me. And Paul knows that the greatest threat to the unity of God's church here in Ephesus is individuals who are living for themselves And not for God. And tell me again, why is unity among God's people so critically important? Yes. 
And when we're unified, the dark side is being proved wrong about what they think of God and his plan of salvation. Man, oh man, that ought to concern us more than it does. Okay, it ought to concern me more than it does. Okay? I think that's what this 12-verse discourse is all about. This, what seems to be sort of a distraction. You know, Paul starts out and then takes off for the next 12 verses in a different direction. He wants Ephesians to know that he has been given an incredible privilege from God that has resulted in God's grace empowering him to take the plan of salvation to the Gentiles. God is taking people from all kinds of different ethnic groups who were normally hostile toward one another, making them his children, growing them into his family, that demonstrates his character. And when that happens, the evil powers that are watching this, who hate God and think it's a stupid idea, are presented with a display of just how awesome God is and that his plan to overcome and disable their powers in the world will work. Yes. But when we don't, the dark side saying, yeah, we knew it. He's a stupid God with a stupid idea. Do we want that? You see how important this is? The reason that Jesus says that those who follow him must die to self so that they will live for him and be like him. When Paul finishes this discourse, he's going to launch right into a prayer for them. Prayer, we ask the Father to strengthen them by the presence of his spirit so that Christ will dwell in their hearts. It's the place... Biblically speaking, where you and I make decisions, am I going to live for myself? Am I going to live for God so that Christ will reign in their hearts so that they can comprehend and live like they comprehend how amazing the love of God is. Now, here's the one truth that I want you to take with you this morning. Paul starts this section of the letter, verse one that we read together, and he refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For the sake of the Gentiles. Prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. And then after the prayer, which starts in verse 14, we're going to look at that next week. Then he he comes back to beginning of chapter four, a section on the importance again of unity in the body of Christ. And he begins that section with a similar description of himself, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul was describing himself as someone whose life had been taken over, whose heart had been captured. Jesus Christ had stormed the walls of his heart and had conquered his life. It's such ironic language. As a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Paul had found more freedom, than he had ever known in his life. But you see, that's the way it works. You remember Jesus' words in in Matthew 18, where he talks about the force of his church and how his church is going to bang down the gates of hell. The powers of darkness will not be able to stand against my church. Do you know the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 2? I'll bet you've heard this before. Paul says to the Corinthian believers, but thanks be to God 
who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Notice what he doesn't say. Thanks be to God who always leads us to live lives any way that we want. No. Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Do you know what that is a picture of? In the Roman world, the triumphal procession was when the conquering general or the conquering captain would ride into the city with his captives all chained behind him. And the city is, yeah, this is great. Rome is awesome. It's the power of the world. And the captives are all beaten down and forlorn and chained together. And they're not being cheered. They're being jeered. Paul says, thanks be to God that he has chained us together in the triumphal procession of Christ. Christ is the victor. We are the captives. And he has captured us so that we might live lives for ourselves. No. He's captured us so that we might live lives that bring glory and praise to who he is. Praise team. Why don't you come on up and, and prepare us to respond this morning. My brothers and sisters, Paul says, thanks be to God that this is what we are a part of, this triumphal procession. If, if we don't see ourselves as prisoners of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we don't start where Paul started here, if we don't see ourselves as prisoners of the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? It's not going to work. And the powers of darkness are proved right. You see, prisoners, prisoners don't have personal rights. Prisoners are subject to the commands of the one who's conquered them. If we understand ourselves as prisoners of the Lord Jesus, then the powerful witness of grace-filled, loving, and forgiving among God's people is not going to happen if we don't see ourselves as his prisoners. God will be mocked by both the world and the powers of darkness. That should concern us. We who say that we love God, we who say that we live for God, ought to be terribly, terribly concerned that we might do or say anything that would mock our God, cause Him to be mocked by the powers of darkness.